Good morning. Well, this morning I want to talk to you guys about the gospel. I always told myself that when the day came for me to pastor a church, my first official sermon would be on nothing but the gospel. So from my perspective, I don't even have a choice. And I have to. I have to preach on the gospel this morning. I am, after all, chiefly a minister of the gospel. And so far be it for me to begin a, a pulpit ministry and not preach the gospel. I believe every time you preach, there should be elements of the gospel in the message. But this morning, I want the entire sermon devoted to this thing we call the gospel. Now, that being said, what exactly is the gospel? I'm sure you've heard the term thrown around like this Christian buzzword. But do you know exactly what it means and what it refers to? If I were to call you out right now, personally, ask you to come up here and explain to us the gospel, How confident are you that you could do that? I'm not going to. Don't worry. I'm not going to do that. But if Christians should know one thing like the back of their hand, it has to be the gospel. And this has to be it. And that's not an exaggeration. A lot of times we exaggerate and throw things out like that. But that's actually true. This is number one. As you may know, the word gospel in the Greek literally means good news. So this gospel, it's a message of good news. And that's a good thing. That's refreshing. There's enough bad news going around these days. We could use some good news. In short, the gospel is a message about God's holiness, man's sinfulness, Christ's forgiveness. It's a message of redemption, reconciliation, salvation. It's a message that will truly change your life and impact your eternal destiny. And it's already done so for for countless lives both throughout history, even in this room, people have been radically transformed by this message. And why is that? How could that be? Well, according to God, he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's it. Do you want the power? What comes in the gospel? The gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1, 16. This message is God's chosen, chosen means for people to get Saved. And saved. Well, what does that mean? Saved from what? Well, we'll get there. But just understand the gospel is it. It's the means to salvation. It's the doorway to the faith. There's no secret handshake to Christianity. There's no membership fee. Rather, to be a Christian, to become a disciple or follower of Christ, it simply means believing the gospel, embracing the gospel. So you need to hear this message this morning. You can't bear to not, to ignore it. There's words you just simply cannot afford to ignore. Now before we really get into it though, I want to pause for a second and I want to speak to you, speak to those here who have been Christians for a long time. Speak to those in the room who've been Christians for a while. And to you I want to say, don't check out. Don't check out this morning. And what I mean by that is, you may be thinking to yourself, wait a second, an entire sermon on the gospel? I mean, I think I've heard the gospel a million times. Give me something new. Give me something you know, interesting. And there's this temptation here where you've heard something so many times, like the gospel. The temptation is to tune it out and to just kind of check out mentally throughout the sermon. Because you know this. This is like a refresher for you. And so I want to say to you, don't let that happen. And why is that? Because your heart should never grow, grow dull to the gospel. It's the message of, of your salvation. You, you should never tire of hearing of this. You should never grow weary of being reminded what God did for you on the cross. So if that's happening, just stop yourself. Stop yourself if you find your heart growing cold to the gospel. Even if you have heard it a million times, Ask God to help your heart always be tender to this, this blessed truth. And I get it. The, the saying is true. Familiarity breeds contempt. The more we hear something, the more familiar it is. We, we tune it out. It happens. But you can't let that happen with the gospel. It's too important. So make it like it's the first time. And worship as you remember what God has done for you. Well, that, that's enough by way of introduction. Let's get into it now and explore this thing we call it the gospel message. And to help organize our time and our thoughts, I want to give you four elements of the gospel message. 
four elements of the gospel message. And the first element is God. Just starting off simple. Just number one, God, the first element. We have to start with God. It always starts with God. We could spend forever talking about God, but I want to narrow it down a little bit further. And under this, I want to give you two attributes of God that intersect the gospel. Of like a subpoint. Two attributes of God that intersect the gospel. And these aren't, of course, the only two attributes of God. These aren't the only two important attributes of God. They're not even the only two attributes that do intersect the gospel, but for the sake of time, these are two essential attributes of God that you have to know and grasp if you're going to understand the heart of the gospel. So the first attribute, God is loving. Number one, God is loving. There's no shortage of scripture to affirm the fact that God is loving. And we know this, we believe this, it's easy to believe. In scripture, God is characterized by love. In fact, he's defined by love. 1 John 4.8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love, it says. God is love. He's defined by love. But I want want you to turn to one passage that, at the very least, clearly affirms God's loving character. And that is important. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. This is where God, he is passing in front of Moses and he is showing Moses his glory. And as God does this, he makes this stunning self-declaration to Moses. And he's passing in front of Moses. As he does so, he is declaring who he is. This is God's self-description. I mean, this is who God is from God's own mouth. That's a pivotal passage in the Old Testament. Let's read The first part of it, Exodus 34, verses 6 and the beginning of verse 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Stop there. And not only is God compassionate and gracious, as we've seen this verse, but it says he abounds in loving kindness or steadfast love. He's just overflowing in in love. And I don't think I even need to elaborate on this. I think most of you, if not all of you, believe, you understand, you get it. God is loving. In fact, I think for most people, their problem is that they think that God is only loving. In fact, even unbelievers or non-Christians Yeah, they believe God is loving, but that's it. But at the very least, we know that God truly does love us. He he loves you, his creation. You're made in his image. And he does have have an intense love for you as a perfect father has a love for his children. That's how God loves us, and that's a good thing to remember. God has a perfect and supreme love for us, his creation made in his own image. And I'll show you how this intersects with the gospel, but for now, get this first attribute, God is loving. Second attribute, though, God is just. God is just. Now here we're going to need to spend a little bit more time because not everyone so easily believes that God is just. Some people want to believe that because God is so loving, he'll just turn a blind eye to sin. He'll look the other way and he'll just overwhelm it with love. He'll overlook your offenses because he loves you so much. But God loves justice and he loves his own glory far too much to overlook sin. And to the contrary, it's it's part of God's perfection to be just and to uphold justice. In fact, God himself would be evil if he let the wicked go free unpunished in the end. That would make him evil. God's justice, his holiness, it's so much a part of who he is that in this same self-declaration, you should still be in Exodus 34, in the same self-declaration, he also declared his justice. We read 34, 6 in the beginning of 7. Look at the rest of verse 7 of Exodus chapter 34. 
He's just talking about how loving he was, yet, verse 7, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. It's right after God declares himself to be loving, forgiving, compassionate. Right after that, he says, but at the same time, the same time he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And the point is he must punish evil. He must judge sin. He has to. God doesn't even have a choice. It's part of his perfect character and perfect justice to judge sin, evil, wickedness. It's part of his perfection. Being a perfectly holy God, separate from evil, God must likewise deal with evil in all of its forms. And understand, this is a good thing. You want a just and righteous God. You do not want a God who tolerates evil, turns a blind eye to evil. You know, imagine I needed $3,000 to pay for tuition for school. You know, pretend you know, I'm still back in seminary, I need three grand. Don't have the money, so I go and rob a 7-Eleven. Rob a 7-Eleven. I'm not a smart criminal, though. I get the money, I get out of there, but I'm not a smart criminal. I don't wear a mask. So they catch my face on camera. I get arrested. Done deal. And so fast forward, I'm standing before the judge, and I get to plead my case before the judge. So this is what I say to the judge. Okay, well, yes, technically, I did rob the 7-Eleven, but nobody got hurt. I didn't even use a real gun. It was a water gun. It was for a good cause. It's for education. I was just trying to pay for school. That's a good cause, right? And on the side, I'm a really good person. You know, I volunteer a lot. I, I feed homeless people a lot. I serve. I give my time all the time. I'm a good person. Now, do you think the judge will find me innocent or guilty? Yeah, guilty. It's not even a, a question. Of course I'm guilty. It doesn't matter how good of a person I am. It doesn't matter of all the good things I've done. If I have broken the law, justice just says, well, you get punished. You have to deal with the consequences. And it really is just that simple. And the point here is God is the exact same way, but perfectly. In the same way, God can by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He can't. He can't do it. It defeats his own character. And we may not be happy if we're the guilty ones being punished, but nevertheless, God has to uphold this perfect sense of justice where if you violate his laws, his commands, his law, so to speak, you're guilty, and you must deal with the consequences. It's just that simple. So two attributes of God to hold on to as we get started. God is loving. God is just. I'm going to come back to these. You're going to see how, why I'm picking these two of all of God's attributes. So stay with me, but get these two down. God is loving. God is just. Now, I want to bring us into the picture, though. Man, mankind. Where, where do we fit into this gospel? So let me move on now to the second element of the gospel message. The second element, and that is man. First, God. Second, man. Man. Whereas I gave you two attributes of God that intersect the gospel, here, as subpoints, let me give you four realities of man that intersect the gospel. Four realities of man that intersect the gospel. And the first is, man is a sinner. Just that simple. A man is a sinner. Now, I hope this comes as no surprise to you. Unless maybe you have an extreme case of self-denial. You probably know you've sinned. You're a sinner. I hope you do. The scripture is crystal clear on this fact. All people, men, women, children, you name it, if you're breathing, you're a sinner. You've sinned. You're a sinner by nature, and you're a sinner by practice. Both ways. Why don't you turn to Romans 3? I'll show you just a few passages on this. Like I said, Scripture is crystal clear on the matter. Romans chapter 3. Here Paul is concluding his opening argument in the book of Romans on how both Jews and Gentiles are condemned, guilty as sinners. This is the case he's building. It culminates in chapter 3. Let's read verses 9 and 10, almost like a summary verse. He says, What then? Are, are we better than they? Not at all. 
For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that makes everybody, are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And then fast forward to verse 23, the, the famous verse, which we all know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This would probably be a good time to define sin. There's a couple of easy or helpful ways to define or think of sin. One, I think, helpful way is that of missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. This concept actually comes from one of the Greek words for sin. It's just literally derived from the word. It's like of an archer shooting at a bullseye and missing the mark. And the idea is you miss the mark. You miss the target. You miss the standard. And see, God sets the standard. God determines what's right, what's wrong. And if you miss that mark, if you fall short of that standard, by definition, you sin. So that's sin. It's just straightforward, missing the mark, falling short of God's standard. Doing anything anything that God says not to do is sin, such as lying, stealing, murdering, adultery. Sin is also failing to do things that God tells you to do. Sins of omission, like not loving your neighbor or not obeying your parents. Those are also sins. And don't think that sin is just confined to the realm of action. It's also, also in the realm of thought and feeling, emotion. You know, lust, anger are also equally sin. In short, anything that displeases or dishonors God may be considered sin. So we've got that simple definition in mind. And it should be obvious, I hope, to you that you fit the bill. You have sinned. You, you fall into this category. And this is the first reality of man that intersects the gospel. And you have to get this. You have to understand your sinfulness. Man is a sinner. In fact, one of the reasons the Bible contains so many rules and regulations and laws, it's to show you. It is to convict you of the fact that you have a lot of sin to deal with before God. I mean, have you ever lied? Of course. If you say no, then you're lying right now. Sin. You ever stolen something? I'm sure you have, even when you're a kid. Sin. I mean, if you ever lusted or gotten angry just, just once, you've sinned. I mean, we can go down the list. Everyone here, I hope, knows that we are sinners, both in deed and in practice. That's the first reality, and you have to grasp this and come to terms with it and not stick your head in the sand, so to speak, and really understand your sinfulness, your, your sin nature. So the first reality, man is a sinner. When you see this clearly, we can move on to the second reality of man that intersects the gospel. Sin is a problem. That's number two. Sin is a problem. So everyone, everyone on the planet, it's a sinner by nature, which means we're born that way. And we're a sinner by deed, which means we act that way. So, But still, what's the big deal? I mean, why is that such a big deal? Right? It's just, it's just sin. Well, sin is a problem. You know, I've got my water here for my throat. Let's say I have a crystal clear glass of water here. Perfectly you know, purified, tastes great. Nothing in it, crystal clear water. Then let's say I take a couple of drops of cyanide and I put it in the water. If you don't know what cyanide is, it's a poison that will kill you in like a minute or less. Okay? So it's a deadly poison. And then I slide the cup of water to you. Would you drink it? You saw me do it. Would you drink it? Well, unless you're suicidal, the answer is no. I mean, you're not going to drink the water. But why not? Because the water no longer meets your standard. The water has now fallen short of your standard for clean drinking water. Well, in the same way, when we sin, we no longer meet God's standard. And so he, like the glass of water, he must reject us. He has to. We no longer meet his standards. He created us pure, clean, undefiled. But the second we sinned, really at the fall, when all of mankind was plunged into sin, it's like the poison in the water. We, we now fall short of God's standard. He has to reject us. He can't accept that. 
when we're defiled with this poison of sin, so to speak, God has to reject us. There's no exceptions. Every person is born defiled by sin. Then we pile onto that with daily sins. And so more and more we fall so far short of God's standard of acceptance that he has to separate himself from us. He has to, he has to reject us because of sin. You may be thinking, that's kind of harsh. What, what is God's standard? Well, if you want to know what God's standard is, just listen to Matthew 5.48. You don't have to turn there. But Christ was teaching and he revealed God's standard. He said, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So God set the standard. And Christ, he set the bar. You know what that bar is? It's perfection. That means zero sins. You're not born with sin, and you never sin your entire life. That's the standard. God demands you to be perfect, that you not have a single drop of poison in you. So I hope you get it now, why sin's a problem. Because if that's God's standard, we have a problem. Because what was the first point? Man is a sinner. We've sinned. We've sinned a lot, too. And you can pick your poison. It doesn't matter. You know, lust, anger, it doesn't matter. They're all equally deadly to God. Even just a single one. And, and although it just takes one sin, we, we fall so much further short. Let's just pretend, let's pretend you're a really good person. And so you only sin three times a day. And by today's standard, that's close to being a saint. That's pretty good. Three times a day, let's call it, let's call it a thousand a year. Let's call it a thousand a year. So you sin a thousand times a year. Let's say you live to be 70. So then on your deathbed, you have 70,000 sins to account for when you die. That's a lot. I don't care if you go into a court of law today with 70,000 parking tickets or 70,000 counts of murder. Something bad is going to happen to you. And you're going to have to deal with some serious consequences for that. And here we are standing before God where just one sin is potent enough to separate us from God for eternity. It's not an exaggeration. God is that holy. And here we are with countless, countless sins. And we fall very far short. That's the point. Man's a sinner. Sin's a problem. Things get worse. Here's the third reality of man that intersects the gospel. The penalty for sin is hell. That's number three. The penalty for sin is hell. Not only are all people sinners, not only is sin a big problem, but things get worse in that the penalty for sin is hell. Hell, it's a real place of eternal, conscious torment. It's separation from God, and there's nothing worse, truly, than eternal separation from God. Romans 6.23 says, well, you guys should be there. Why don't you turn to Romans 6. Look at verse 23. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that first phrase, for the wages of sin is death, that death, it's actually referring to an eternal death. How do I know that? Because the verse, he's setting up a contrast between eternal death and what he says after that, eternal life. And the point is, when you die, you're going to face one of two things eternal death or eternal life. And sin buys you a ticket to the former. The wages of sin is death. Matthew 25 also tells us this. Jesus gives us a window into the future judgment day where he himself passes judgment on the world. And Matthew 25:41 reads, Then he, Christ, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It says right there, eternal fire. It's real. It's, it's bad. This is the penalty for sin. You know, the world makes light of this. The world jokes of this. The world denies it. Denies that hell is even a real place. But what can we say? It's in scripture. I don't like it as much as, as they do, but it's, it's what God has set up. He's that holy. He's so holy and so pure that he cannot even tolerate the presence 
of sin. And if you don't get that, then you just have a low view of God's holiness. That's, that's the problem. He's so separate. He has to eternally separate himself from sin and from those defiled by sin, by the poison. Sounds bad. It is bad. So the consequence. But actually, it gets worse again. For not only are all people sinners, not only is sin a problem, not only is hell the penalty for sin, but on top of all this, the fourth reality, man can't save himself. Man can't save himself. It's the fourth reality here. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't get yourself out of this hole. Quick recap. You're born into sin. On top of that, you sin every day. You're clearly guilty. And so you stand condemned in front of a perfectly holy God who can't tolerate sin. You're going to be judged, and that's just. You deserve it. So do I, by the way. We're all in the same boat. And so finally now, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to stop that. Do you know why I say that? It's because you are spiritually dead. We read Ephesians 2.1 before. I'll just read it. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It says you were dead. This, this verse is referring to people in their natural sinful states. It talks about our spiritual death. And the reason you can't save yourself from your sin problem is because you're dead. You're spiritually dead before God. Last time I checked, dead people don't do a whole lot. And if I were to walk up to a corpse in a morgue or something like that, if I were to say to the corpse, you know, hey, raise your hand. Get up. What was your name again? What would happen? <laughs> Thank you. Nothing would happen. Nothing, because it's a, it's, it's a corpse. It's dead. Dead people don't respond. And spiritually, you're dead. And you cannot respond even to God. And this is your condition spiritually before God. You're spiritually dead, which means you're helpless. You cannot react to save yourself. You're like a corpse in a burning building. You can't get out. You're just lifeless. And the best picture I can think of this is it's being... You know, trapped or lost in the middle of the ocean. And say you're on a cruise, you fall off the you fall off the cruise ship, and nobody knows, nobody sees you, and the ship sails away. So it's you in the middle of the ocean. There's no boat, no people, no island, no raft, no life jacket for a hundred miles. You're you're it's just you in the open sea, and you're dead. I mean, you may be breathing technically, you may be afloating for a little while, you may be alive. But you're as good as dead. You are, you're doomed. This is us right now in this life. We live, we're, we're like that. We're doomed. We're, we're helpless. We can't do anything. We cannot save ourselves. Do you get the picture? Because I'm building up to this on purpose. You have to get our predicament, our dilemma, our problem. You have to understand our sin problem and the consequences and our helpless nature. This is us before God. Let me do a little illustration here. Let's say this is us, and this is God. And God wants to have a relationship with us. Remember we said God is loving. He does love us. He wants to love us and have a relationship with us, as he created us for perfectly in the garden. But let's say this book, this Bible is, let's say this is a record book of sins. Remember we had those 70,000 sins? Well, here they are. And so although God wants to, love us. This is us. This is our sin. He has to judge us. Now we are separated from God by this record book of sins. And so his, he has to now judge us. He doesn't have a choice. And though he does love us, and that's true, his justice cannot be denied. He must judge. And what do we do about this? What do we do about this predicament? What's your answer in your mind? What would you do? Is there a way out? If you're out there thinking, I don't know, what what do you do about that? That's kind of, I don't get it. I guess I would just go to hell. If that's, if that's where you're at this morning, 
Well, here's where the good news comes in. This is why it's called the good news. Because that is your predicament and mine. And there is nothing you can do about that. That's true. But God. But God can do something about it. And he did do something about it. And this brings us now to the third element of the gospel message. The third element of the gospel message. It's the good news. It's Christ. That's number three. Christ. Christ is the good news. Christ is the solution to that problem. So if you get the predicament, if you understand the problem, Christ is the solution. I'll explain how. But I hope even for some of you, maybe the, you know, the light bulb is clicking on for the first time here. and That's good. I hope that's true. Let's see where Christ fits in here. I want to give you two truths of Christ that intersect the gospel. Another sub-point. Two truths of Christ that intersect the gospel. The first one is who he is. Who he is. Starting off with who he is. We need to know who this person is. So turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We don't have a, a ton of time to look at verses here, but we can look at one of the most significant telling us who he is. John chapter 1. And look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The word here, logos in the Greek, it's referring to Jesus. So just when you see word, know that it's talking about Jesus. So it says, he was in the beginning. He was with God, but then he was God. And then verse 14, another well-known verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We don't have time to drill down at these verses in a super detailed way, but in short, they clearly reveal that Jesus was God in the flesh. He's God incarnate. 100% God, 100% man. The second member of the Trinity, he comes down into earth and he assumes, he takes on a second nature, a human nature, and he becomes one of us. Born of a virgin supernaturally through Mary, he lived a perfect life, whereas you and I were born sinners and we continue to sin, Neither were true of Christ. He lived a truly perfect life. And therefore, he didn't deserve to die. Wages of sin is death. He didn't have that. But that's exactly what he came to do. He was born to die. And this is the second truth of Christ, what he did. Briefly, who he is. Secondly, now, what he did. And what did he do? Well, he, he died on the cross. And then he rose from the dead to pay the penalty for our sins and to offer us eternal life in heaven. There's your one-liner. He was crucified on the cross as our perfect substitute. And by his death and resurrection, we are justified, which means we're made right before God. Isaiah 53.6. You actually have to turn here. This is... Such a key verse in showing you what Christ did. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah 53, verse 6 reads, it's talking about all of us here, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity or sin of us all to fall on him. You know what this verse is saying is, I'll give you the illustration again. You know, here, remember, here's us, and here's God, and he wants to have that loving relationship with us. But here's our sin, and he must judge us. So what's the solution? The solution is Christ. And when Christ came, he died on the cross. And what did he do on the cross? It wasn't just a death. On the cross, he took our sins and he placed them on himself. And so now in one fell swoop, in one motion, 
The love of God is satisfied. We're made clean. And look, now God can have that loving relationship with us and dwell with us forever. But at the same time, God's justice is satisfied. Nobody goes free here in this transaction. Nobody goes clean with no cost. There had to be some payment made for yours and my sin. And Christ actually paid that penalty. The transaction was made where he... The penalty you should have paid in hell forever, he paid on the cross. That's what happened. Being perfect, Jesus was able to be a substitute sacrifice. Being man, Jesus was able to be a substitute sacrifice for men. And being God, Jesus was able to endure the full eternal wrath of God that would have been poured out on us. That's why he had to be fully God, fully man, to deal with it on the cross. So this is the heart of the gospel. This is it. That God sent Jesus to die for sinners, that they might be redeemed, forgiven, saved from sin. I know we're covering a lot of ground this morning. Let's read some some key verses in scripture that, that help us better understand the heart of the gospel. So let's let's bounce back to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. These are all verses we know so well, but what reminders we're seeing. And if you ever want key verses that summarize the heart of the gospel, write these down. Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. Let's read those together. Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God, there's those two words again. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies. But he still did this. Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. That means being made right before God. We shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God through him, Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the recon- reconciliation. Excuse me. He's reconciled us in his death. The sin created this chasm where we were separate from God like a an infinite Grand Canyon. And Christ came and he, he stood in the gap. He bridged the gap and reconciled the two parties. Of course, God didn't need to be brought to us. We needed to be brought to God. And Christ did that. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. A couple pages to the right. 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there. This is Paul literally telling us the gospel. This is his succinct couple verse definition of the gospel. And we've got to read this. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if... You hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. In verse 3 and 4, he gets into it. 4. I delivered to you as of first importance, like I said, this is number one, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's it. That, that's a very clear, succinct definition. It's Christ, he died, he rose for our sins. And if you only have a second to tell someone, tell them that. Because that gospel, that even simple message, it's the power. It's the power of God for salvation. Yeah. Well, we've got the time. Let's look at Colossians 2. Just one more verse here. Colossians chapter 2. I, I love this one.
Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. It's another good reminder. When you, it says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Christ, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Yeah. See that? Yeah. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, that's like that record book of sins, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He, he took it. And he, he wiped it clean. And you're debt free. And furthermore, in the work that Christ did on the cross, it was final. And you have to get that. Remember, we're talking about what he did. And as he died on the cross, he paid for your sins. That work was final. You know one of his last words on the cross? It is finished. And tetelestai is the word in technically Aramaic. And it's originally thought... Scholars think that this word was used as a merchant term. So let's say I owed you 100 bucks. I'm going to pay you back in five installments of 20. So 20, 40, 60, 80. I slap in your hand that last 20, and I, say, I would say, to tell us time, meaning it is finished, signifying that the debt I owed you has been paid in full. And I think Christ said this as his final words on the cross for a reason, to signify that the debt he was paying for our sins was paid, and it was paid in full. There's nothing left. There's nothing left for you to pay after Christ's work. It means your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins, they've been paid for. They were wiped away on the cross. There's no debt left for you to pay. Catholics, for instance, unfortunately, they get this way wrong. They believe that after you come to what they call faith in Christ, you still have a debt to pay. And for the rest of your Christian or Catholic life, you have to keep paying off your own debts and keep doing good works to pay back the debt of your sin. And so they have a work system. And, and guess what? If you die and you still have debt, you go to purgatory Wherefore, however many thousands of years, you keep paying off your debt until you're finally debt-free. Then you can go to heaven. Do you see the problem with that? There's nothing left to pay, even in this life. You're debt-free before God. That's what it means to be justified. Right here, right now. Christ put an end to sin once and for all. And so now Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's the only solution to man's problem. The sin problem we talked about, there's only one solution. There's only one road that leads to heaven. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He, he said it. He's now the door to heaven. Christ is now the entryway to salvation. There's no other Savior. There's no other gospel. Jesus is the gospel. But we're not done. Because there's one little piece of the puzzle missing. Everything we've said is true. And Christ did die for our sins. But that doesn't mean everyone goes to heaven. Does it? It doesn't mean everyone receives the work that Christ did on the cross. Does it? There's one final step missing whereby you must access and receive the payment that Christ made on the cross. And this fourth and final step is our fourth element of the gospel message. Fourth element of the gospel message, and that is faith. Faith. We start with God, then man, then Christ, and now faith. Simple outline. Faith is the final step. It's the last piece of the puzzle. It's the link to make salvation yours. And faith is what you must have if you are to receive everything Christ did on the cross. If you don't have this final step, you have nothing. And you are still dead in your sins. Ephesians 2.1, that's still you if you don't have faith. The only escape is Christ. And the only doorway to that escape 
is faith. If Christ is the gift on everyone's doorstep, faith is opening the door and taking it, receiving it, so to speak. And so since this last step is so crucial, I want to give you three explanations of faith that intersect the gospel. Three explanations of faith that intersect the gospel. The first one is, what faith is not. What faith is not. We've got to start off with the negative. Let's clear this away. It's pretty important because faith is misunderstood. It's used casually. You know, We have faith in our favorite team. Now, I have faith in the Dodgers that they're going to win or whatever. Well, that's not what faith is. To start with, faith is not mere intellectual assent. What I mean by that is, faith is not just head knowledge. It's not just data in your mind. It's not just knowing the facts about something or someone. Faith in Jesus doesn't mean that you know stuff about him, even in the Bible. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And the point of that passage, or something we can derive from that is, look, even Satan and the demons believe in God. And they believe in Christ. They know Christ well. In fact, they know, or they saw him during his life, and they know that he died on the cross. They know all this data about Christ. They probably know Christ far better than we do. But does that mean they have faith in Christ? Not at all. You see the point? It's not just head knowledge. Believing in Jesus is not the same as believing in George Washington. There's a difference here when we're talking about biblical faith. It's not just data. So get that straight. Do not confuse knowledge with faith. (coughs) Secondly, faith is not temporary. A lot of people get this wrong as well, where faith is just their their crutch, their on-demand help. I think a lot of people today have airplane faith, meaning when they get on an airplane, they're scared. They'll pray to God. They'll have faith. But the second they land safely, God goes back in his box and they forget about him for the rest of their time. This is like an airplane faith. This is on demand. Whenever you need God, then you'll have faith. But every other day, you forget about God. That is a that that falls far short of this true biblical saving faith. So then, what is faith? Well, that's our second explanation. What faith is? What faith is? And we'll just look at one verse. Hebrews 11 gives us a succinct definition. Turn to Hebrews 11. Let's look at verse 1. It's where the writer of Hebrews gives us a little understanding of faith as he begins Hebrews chapter 11, the faith hall of fame. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, it's not just knowledge, but it's a trust, it's an assurance. I think trust is my favorite synonym for faith. It's a trust relationship. In faith, you are, you're believing. You're trusting in Jesus Christ to save you in that relationship. There's a living relationship with your Savior whereby you trust him for everything he promises. Forgiveness, salvation, redemption, reconciliation, so on. Faith is, is trusting in Christ alone to save you. And it's a trust that, that moves, that acts that follows through. Have you ever heard of a a guy named Blondine? He was a tightrope walker in the 1800s. I guess the first famous one. And he was most famous for crossing the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. They didn't have safety nets back then, so he just kind of went back and forth. So picture you're there. You're on the scene. There would be crowds lined up on either side cheering him on. Pretend you're in one of the crowds. And he's there and he's asking you, do you think I can go back and forth across Niagara Falls without my balancing beam? You know, the, the big beam that they hold to balance themselves. Can I go back and forth without the beam? And you're thinking, yes, you know, we have faith in you, Blondie, and we, we, we believe you can do it. Go for it. And so he goes back and forth. No problem. Easy. So he comes back and says, do you think I can do this holding a wheelbarrow? And it's really you know, awkwardly shaped. And you're thinking, yes, we we believe in you. We have faith in you. You can do it. Go for it. So he goes back and forth. No problem. 
And so then he says, do you think I can carry a person in this wheelbarrow and go back and forth? And you're like, yes, we believe in you. We have faith in you. Go for it. Then he points to you. And he says, jump in. <laughs> Would you do it? Most people saying no. Well, here's the thing. If you had true biblical saving faith in Blondine, you would. Do you get the point? You would jump in right away. That's that's the character of faith we're talking about here. Where it's real, it's a trust, and it will it will go to the, it will go the distance. The difference, of course, is that the object of our faith is not Blondine. It, it is Christ. So we can rest assured in our trust and in the object of our faith. Saving faith, it's a trust in Christ to save you from your sins. It's always accompanied by right action. So that's it. That's how we are saved. You can't work your way to heaven. Being a good person is not good enough. I hope you get that straight. There's no good people in heaven. Not a single good person makes it to heaven. Only bad people go to heaven. Bad people forgiven by Christ. No one has earned heaven. No one has deserved it. No one has done enough to get there on their own. You can't. Don't make that mistake. Going to church, praying, giving, serving, being good, that's all good, but it's secondary to faith in Christ. It's all secondary. Like the guilty robber before the judge, there's nothing you can do to get out of your punishment. But God in love, he intervened, he paid the penalty for us, and now he makes everyone an offer. This is a universal offer that if you believe, you will be saved. If you simply have faith in his son Christ, you will be saved. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is, that's the gospel. That is the heart of the gospel. One last explanation of faith I think we have time for that I want to give you. Number three, faith includes repentance. Well, I'll throw this in here. Faith includes repentance. Definition of repentance comes from the Greek word metanoeo, which means change of mind. But it, it's really it's a change of mind that necessarily leads to a change in action. That's repentance. And so it's used of turning away from your sin. You change. You, you go and sin no more. You change who you are. It means you start thinking of your sin the way God thinks of your sin. In other words, you hate it. And so you turn away from it. Isaiah 55.7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's a picture of you're turning away, you're, you're repenting of your sins and, and walking in a different direction. And I want you to understand, repentance and faith they are two sides of the same coin. They, they go together. You cannot have one without the other. Let's give you an illustration here. Pretend this wall to my left, this direction, it is the way of sin, unrighteousness. You know, walking in this direction leads to hell. And this way to my right, it is the way of righteousness and of faith. It is walking towards Christ, and walking in this direction leads to heaven. And before salvation... Every single one of us were walking in this direction. All of us were, were blindly headed in the path of sin and we're lost. But God, when he intervenes and saves us, and when we come to faith in Christ, what do we do? We do a 180 and we start walking in this direction toward faith, toward Christ. Okay? Now what's happening in this 180? Well, I'm turning away from the wall. I'm turning away from sin. That's repentance, turning away from. At the same time, I'm turning toward Christ. I'm turning toward righteousness and faith. Look, it's one motion. It's just a one, 180 turn. It's a one motion, but it includes repentance and faith. That's why I say that the two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot cling to your sin, but claim to follow Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. When you become a Christian, you still sin. You sin lots. It doesn't mean you become perfect when you become a Christian, but the difference is you're no longer walking that way. 
You're no longer walking headlong into sin. You're walking this way. You may stumble now and then into sin, but you are continually having faith. You're continually repenting. The difference is there's been a change in your life where God and everyone can see you're going that way. You're walking towards the Lord. That's what it means to pick up your cross and follow him. You're following him in that direction. The Christian must make a decisive break from sin and follow Christ. So there we have it. Four elements of the gospel message. Two attributes of God that intersect the gospel. Four realities of man that intersect the gospel. Two truths of Christ that intersect the gospel. And three explanations of faith that intersect the gospel. But even all that is just the beginning. But it's sufficient. It's a sufficient understanding of the gospel. Only after this, only after you come to faith in Christ, do you start doing the Christian things. And I want you to understand that. You know, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, serving, giving. It's all good, but it's all secondary, like I mentioned, to faith in Christ. You cannot get past that. You can come to church all you want. You can give all you want, serve all you want. It's not going to make God happy. It's not going to get you to heaven. That only pleases God if you first come to him in faith. Then the Christian life begins. So that's the gospel. Do you understand? Is it clear? And if it is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with the claims that the gospel demands? You've been confronted, not with me, just with the gospel. How are you going to respond and I hope it's clear enough that you are left with only two choices. You either accept it or you reject it. That's it. You should only have two choices. There's no fence sitting on this one. You must make a decision and live accordingly. I can't make you believe it. It's not my goal. I can't do it. I wish everyone would, but it's between you and the Lord. You have to reckon with what you've heard today. And these truth claims from Scripture, what are you going to do? Are you going to cling to your sin and keep going that path or cling to the solution in Christ? So I urge you, as you leave, seriously consider God's holiness, your sinfulness, and the gap between the two. You have to get this, this chasm that separates you and then seriously consider Christ who, as mentioned, stands in the gap and bridges the gap, and he will reconcile you to God if you look to him, if you give him your entire life. Salvation is free, but it, it costs your whole life. So don't leave here today without reconciling with God. I urge you. And you can always talk to me, talk to your elders, talk to almost anyone in this room, and we'll help you navigate these waters toward faith in Christ. And for those in here, though, who have been, by God's grace, already been transformed, and you already have salvation, like we said at the beginning, what a reminder. You should put a smile on your face as a reminder of what God has done for you. And the penalty that was paid, the price given, you were redeemed at a cost. It wasn't free. It cost God his entire son's life given over on the cross. He crushed him his own son, to, to save you. And tell me that's not love, that God is loving. So don't let your heart grow cold or callous to the gospel message, even if this is the million and one time you've heard it. Every time should rekindle fresh affection for the God who saved you. And especially for those who know what you've been saved from. Especially. So let this reminder drive you to greater worship, both with your lips and with your lives. And let it continually motivate you as you're walking in this direction, as you're walking on the path to, to be more holy, to get rid of more sin each and every day, follow Christ all the more. Let us thank God daily for the gospel. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you for the gospel. It, it is our life. It is the message of our salvation. We're lost without it. We were helpless without it, but, but you saved us. You, you intervened. You reached into history and you made us your own. 
Thank you for these words. Thank you for this message in Scripture of your truth. I pray for all here, that all here would come to terms with it, would reckon the gospel, they would believe it. May your spirit work in them to change them, to save them. And for those who know it, Lord, draw them ever closer to yourself. Help them to always love and cherish your gospel. May they preach the gospel to themselves daily, reminding themselves the price that's been paid for them, and may that spur them on every day to live for you. It's a reminder we need often. So we thank you for it this morning, and may we be a people known for your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.